tonight I'd like to talk about equanimity and wise action. Our final Dharma talk help us go back into our lives a little bit. This morning in my groups, I was very moved. I had some people who were quite concerned about going back to their lives, and justifiably so, some of these people were from New York City. <laughs> and, you know, a lot had come up through the week, and, you know, a lot of concern about what they're going back to as well. And I had been, uh, I left the country on September 25th, um, just as soon as I could get the flight that I needed to get back to go to England where I was teaching. And I actually essentially was out of the country for about three months. I just returned about three weeks ago. So I've been very much out of touch with the changing attitudes and the uh, rhythms of things that have been going on here in America for the most part. And it was very, very uh, touching for me, very important for me to have first-hand experience talking with some of the people that I talked to this morning. But yet, it certainly doesn't m matter where you're going back to. The same issues are relevant for each one, uh, whether it's New York or wherever else it is, because life as we know it comes flooding back in with all of our decisions and plans, our responsibilities, our families, our jobs, our uh, educational processes we're involved in. And this 21st century that we're part of it can be very demanding, as we know it, depending on where we live, really, uh, depending on whether we live in the city or we live more rurally, more quietly. But at a fundamental level of our being, Nothing really changes whether we're here or whether we're there where we live. Essentially, there are only six experiences that happen. There are five sense experiences of sight, taste, smell, hearing, and touch, and our thought about it all. And that those six experiences are cycling around moment to moment to moment. And because of their continuity in time, they weave a story very much like a film or a movie, the frames of a, of a movie that we go to see. It's just individual frames, yet because of the continuity and the, and the succession of the frames playing, it weaves a story, the story about me, story about our world. And these six experiences, whether we're here or whether we're back home, they move in extremes of pleasure and pain. Pleasure and pain. They go from one end of the con continuum to the other. And that extreme end of the continuum can change for each individual at any time, can't it? You know, depending on the situation, like September 11th, 
that the extremes of that continuum changed a lot for many of us on September 11th. And I wonder if each of us are being asked by the great mystery in which we live, how can the human heart absorb the continual changing contrasts of this life without being shattered? with these constant changing uh, impressions of pain and pleasure and pain and pleasure and all the extremes of it. Are we being asked, how much can my heart hold? How much can my heart hold? I wonder if that really isn't the, the teaching or the lesson for all of us in this lifetime. It's these teachings that we are part of here, the Buddha's teachings, this path, that show us the way to open to life in both extremes of pleasure and pain. By this practice that we are engaged in, we are empowered to face the unsatisfactory aspects of life without drowning in sorrow and aversion. By this practice, we are empowered to face that which is pleasant, even that which is exalted sometimes, without being lost in craving and indulgence. We are being asked not to turn away from our experience, but turn towards it. Turn towards it and allow things to be as they are. We've been doing that lovely chant in the evening, you know, may I know things just as they are. This practice that really shows us the way that empowers us to be able to do that. And in this way, we develop a mind of equanimity, a mind that is not caught up in its reactivity of likes and dislikes or for and against but we can find a place of balance within our own mind and be open to the way things are. Our practice really does begin with acceptance. I think this is, this is, the, this is the place that we all begin our practice. And, and, ha and as, it has, as has been said over these days here, to say yes to all experiences this kind of acceptance that can say yes to everything that arises. But this acceptance is not an end in itself. It's not that we should just be more accepting people or come to a place of acceptance. It's really the beginning of our practice. Because when our mind is accepting of what is, then it's not caught in reactivity. And when our mind is not caught in reactivity, then there's the possibility for wisdom and clear seeing to arise. And this is really what we're interested in, is the development of wisdom and to be able to access deep wisdom within our own heart and mind. And with this wisdom and clarity that arises when we're not caught in the reactivity, we can make wise choices for ourselves, which then lead to wise action in our life. 
So I can't really stress the importance enough of really coming to terms with the judging mind, with that mind that many of you have seen over the week here that isn't able to accept myself or what I see in myself or others very easily. And we really need to pay attention to this because it does obscure the wisdom, the wisdom coming forth. Because the judgment, it's like it puts pressure on consciousness. It, be, it becomes like a filter over consciousness and we can't see very clearly. This practice strengthens our ability to pay attention without this overlay of self-judgment and self-expectation. Otherwise, what we're doing is we're just imposing our ideas from the past of what we think is right and what we think is wrong, what we think is good, what we think is bad, what we should be doing, what we shouldn't be doing. And we're really tangled up in all these confused ideas. And we feel the tension of that within ourselves. And we lose connection. We lose connection with the deeper aspect, the intuitive aspect of our own wisdom. A moment of awareness, of simply knowing our experience in a clear way, without judgment and without expectation, is a moment of conscious choice. This is why it's so important to be able to be present, to be aware of what's happening, because what we have is choice. When we're lost and we're overcome by our habits of mind, the habits of greed, the habits of anger, the habits of delusion, there really isn't much choice operating there because the habit itself is taking over. The habit of the greed or the habit of the anger, the habit of delusion. We can't say that there's real choice there for us. We might even say that habit, the word habit, is the same word as ego. You know, ego, habit, habit, ego. There's really not much difference between those two words. That tendency of mind that repeats again and again the same habits <laughs> and uh, we get fixated and solidify around those things and we do not feel our freedom. There's a definition, perhaps you've heard, of insanity. And it says that insanity is repeating the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And yet, <laughs> I think a lot of us do that. You know, we're doing the same thing again and again. And we don't know why something different is happening for us. We are not free in those moments. When we talk of freedom, we're talking about freedom from habit, freedom from these habits, the freedom to choose in any moment to do something differently. You know, to really have the spacious aspect of mind where we can do something. We can see what we're doing and we can say, yes, I want to do this differently now. I don't want to keep walking down that same path, down that same road. This is the power of transformation when we can see what we're doing. 
I think in our Western culture, there is somewhat of a misunderstanding of what freedom is. Because to a certain extent, it's free, the freedom in the Western culture is the freedom to choose from many different products. No. <laughs> and, and I wonder if there's actually any real freedom to choose at all. Or are we really driven just by more uh, the strength of our uh, habits of, of desire and fear? It, being out of the country as much as I have, um, I remember having been in India and England a great deal of time and come back and gone to the supermarket. And I would just want to buy some milk. And I remember looking at the shelf, which was about 20 feet long, with all these different kinds of milk, <laughs> you know, of like non-fat, 1%, 2%, lactose-free, acidophilus, uh, partially skim milk, uh, <laughs> whole milk, half cream, full cream. And, and just, you try, try, I don't know what to do. You know, I just want, just give me some milk. No. <laughs> and it is somehow we, we have, to a certain extent, got, gotten out of hand with the choices that are now available to us. Is this really freedom? When we speak of freedom, the freedom of choice from a place of transformation, we're talking about the freedom from habit that is only possible by seeing the patterns that are manifesting in the mind and knowing how to let go of them. The mindfulness uh, practice that we do, the, the factor of mindfulness that arises for us, is the quality of mind that notices this pattern that's arising. And, and this is what helps us overcome the pattern. The mindfulness might be called the inner breaks the inner breaks, because it slows down our action just enough so that we can see what we're doing. It slows down the transition from the thought to the action, so we may even be able to catch what we're doing at the place of thought. Without this mindfulness, we can get lost and just go on automatic, and then there's no transformation that's possible. This mindfulness is what encourages stability in our mind, in our body. Without it, we are unstable because when we're caught up in our reactions, our reactions of, of, of attachment and greed, our reactions of hatred and aversion, and, and our, our, our dullness, our delusion, this is not a very stable location to be acting from. When we are aware, when we're present and connected, this is what gives us the stability. This is what gives us the sense of groundedness within ourselves as we proceed from this clear place. But this mindfulness itself is not the wisdom. The mindfulness is what creates the space for our wisdom to come through, because it's only when we're present can our wisdom have a chance of manifesting? This wisdom is also called wise discrimination. It gives us the ability to be able to discriminate 
what path we want to take, what action we want to take, which direction we want to go. It allows us to make wise choices. I want to tell you about a, um, a woman, and a remarkable woman that I met on a retreat a couple of years ago. We were talking in an interview. She's a, a lovely, a young woman in her young 20s. And she was really waking up through her meditation practice and through yoga and was becoming aware of a very rich inner life that she hadn't been so in touch with. And her problem was, was that she, you know, she was about 21 or 22, and she really wanted to play with her friends and the friends that she uh, had uh, uh, grown up with. But her friends were drinking and uh, dancing and doing some drugs, and, uh, and she wanted, she was starting to feel a little torn and a little confused because she wanted to be true to the new feelings that were arising within her, but at the same time she wanted to be with her friends. They would sometimes uh, talk about people in ways that she didn't really like, and there were a number of things that would arise that she felt a lot of dissonance with and wanted to listen to her heart. And I was so touched because she really wanted to explore what to do, how she could uh, enter uh, into her life in a way that was really conscious and wise. She said that sometimes she didn't like the way her friends talked about others. She didn't like the separation that was happening between the in-group and the out-group. And she didn't like how she felt when she drank too much. So what, what, what should she do? She didn't want to cut her friends out. She knew that she was willing to take the risk of being present with her deepest truth. That was what was most important to her. So we just explored that a while together, and she came up with what is called in our tradition the middle way, you know, a way that she wouldn't have to cut her friends out and she could also stay really true to her heart. So she decided on three things. She decided, of course, that she would stay with her friends and keep enjoying herself, but she decided that, one, she wouldn't participate in any kind of judgmental or critical speech about other people. She wouldn't shut people out who weren't accepted by her group. And she decided that she would drink just a little bit in moderation, even if her friends were drinking more, and would watch her uh, mind state and what happened around that so that she wouldn't get into states that, were, uh, that made her feel disconnected and uncomfortable. In this way, she was really consciously making choices uh, in her life that honored her deepest values, honored the deepest part of her. And I was really so moved, so touched by that ability to really discriminate within herself how she could do that. She wasn't making those decisions because one was right and the other was wrong but she was really in touch with the way to uh, respond most compassionately from a deep place in her heart. It was important for her to stay with her truth rather than be liked or validated by her friends. There are times when you will find yourself 
in situations that don't support your deeper values. You know, we all find ourselves in situations like this. What are you going to do? What are you going to listen to when that happens? When we find ourselves in these situations, we need to stop. We need to listen. We need to connect back in with what's important to us because it's so easy to lose touch. It's so easy to lose connection when the, the uh, force of the culture is moving in a different direction than you are. Our practice really is one of listening. We've been talking about this over the week, of this listening. <coughs> and listening to, in this case, when we speak about wise action, listening for where our choices are arising from. What's going on? When we're caught in unconscious habit, we're moving from attachment and fear. This is called self-contraction, the contraction of self. And when we're caught in this contraction of self, we might be thinking, for example, um, I have to get it right, or I have to be <coughs> right, <coughs> or I have to be loved, I have to, be, I have to get approval or validation or recognition. I need some kind of success to be uh, seen in the way that I want to be seen. These are all uh, motivations from attachment and fear, from a sense of, of a self-contraction. But there's another motivation for our choices, and that motivation is one of wisdom. Choices that move from our heart, from understanding, from clarity, from sensitivity, from compassion, from love. And when we move from wisdom, that is always the most compassionate response. When we can get in touch with that within ourselves, that is the compassionate response. But how do we know? How do we know, really, if we're moving from fear or we're moving from wisdom. This is, <laughs> this is what we all want to know, isn't it? You know, it's like, what's operating here? How can I get in touch with this? Sometimes for myself, I have found very helpful to simply ask the question. Very directly, in a moment when, I, when I'm unsure, I'm feeling some energy, some movement in myself, I have to make a choice to go one way or the other. I'll just ask myself, right now, is there fear operating or is there wisdom operating? And really trying to get a, a, a clearer sense of what's moving within myself. It's, I, I find it very useful to hold that question. Is this, am I moving now from fear or am I moving now from wisdom? And it helps me really investigate my motivation at a much deeper level. But of course, it's difficult to know. But the intention to want to investigate, the intention to want to know itself has a great deal of power. And we also have to be willing to make mistakes, to take risks, because 
That's really how we're going to find out by the consequences of what happens. That's often a good sign to us to find out what was motivating us. You know, if something really, uh, uh, a backlash of anger comes back to us or some kind of strong attack, it's not always that it, our, we were, we were uh, uh, misguided in our motivation, but sometimes it's something else to look at. I have a quote from um, the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama admitted that he sometimes is not sure the decisions he's making are the best ones, that sometimes he makes mistakes. But he said, the only thing I can rely on is my sincere motivation. We're going to make mistakes. Knowing the difference between fear and wisdom is really tricky because the energy of fear and wisdom can actually feel the same. And I want to talk a little bit about that and clarify this for us because I think this is something uh, interesting to reflect on. What we call fear, generally, is an energy that sends the message to withdraw, to pull back. We may feel unsafe or unprotected in some way uh, with a person or a group or a situation. And we may feel contracted. We may even feel overwhelmed by the situation with very little capacity to deal with it. But that energetic response to the situation, even though it's taking the form of a contraction and the uh, uh, energy to pull back, might actually be wisdom. It may actually be a message to us that we need to pull back. We need to listen to that energy that's saying, move away from the situation. You need to take care of yourself right now. It may not necessarily be the time to push through the experience to try to overcome the fear, but actually very gently and very compassionately listen to the energy that's moving within. In fact, it may not be fear at all. It just may be a contracted energy pulling us back. And what we need to do is back off, back away from the situation, and that's exactly what we need to be doing. I want to um, tell you a story about something that happened with me that made this very, very clear for me in my own experience. And it's a, another story about India, which again is really my training ground in so many ways. About a year and a half ago, I was in South India. Uh, actually, it was the last time I was there. And this last time, I met a friend from England who, for years, we wanted to be in India together. And this was really our chance. And she had spent a lot of time in India in her early years, uh, when she was in her 19 or 20 years old, and really felt comfortable in India. And she wanted me to experience uh, that which is kind of in the, uh, in, not just sort of the tourist uh, 
the, the tourist uh, uh, routes, but she wanted me to go into India, you know, into the villages, into the fields to meet the people, to find out what was really going on, you know, not just, she wanted me to go have a much uh, a more real experience of India. And so we went to uh, one of her, her Indian friend's house, so woman uh, Satya and her mother. Uh, Satya was about, about 30, five years old, a, a medical doctor. And she worked in the local hospital there. And um, it wasn't a very poor area. It was kind of a middle class area. And um, she was trying to uh, create a neonatal unit at the hospital because there wasn't any, uh, there wasn't any unit to help save the babies who were born uh, with some difficulties. Uh, and the, the babies that were born without um, medical assistance were just left to die. Um, and there wasn't a lot of, of, of value around that um, uh, because there, that there just were so many things for people to deal with, they didn't really want to have to spend a lot of money and a lot of time and energy taking care of these babies. Of course, my friend Sacha, was, she, she felt that it was her life work to change people's attitude towards that. And so she single-handedly, through fundraising and talking to people and educating people, created this small neonatal unit in the hospital. And my friend Caroline uh, wanted me to go to the hospital with Sacha and her and to see the, the, what she had done, which uh, was, was an incredible opportunity to see this. And so at uh, twilight, it was just getting dark, we walked together to the, to the hospital. And I hadn't been in an Indian hospital before fortunately, but it was uh, something that I hoped I would never have to do. And as I approached the hospital, there were about a hundred people sitting outside the hospital, uh, sitting on the grass, either waiting for uh, family members who were in the hospital. There were fire, fires burning, they were cooking, and keeping themselves warm in the coolness of the night. <coughs> and then walking into the hospital, all the rooms were very open, very big and open, and open air, because it's fairly warm, and so the air would come through. And a lot of uh, family members were sitting with their uh, uh, family people on the beds, and it was very, very relaxed, very open. And so we went up to the neonatal unit, and I knew this was going to be extremely challenging, and could feel myself starting to contract and feeling wondering whether I'd really be able to handle it. But I wanted to go. I wanted to challenge myself. I wanted to push myself and, and see something that I knew was really going to be difficult and also really pay respect and honor Sacha's work. And so we went up to the unit, and, uh, and she had had it all built in so it was as, as protected as possible, uh, sterile, as sterile as possible. And there were about um, eight babies that, that were in these little um, cribs that she had made by local craftsmen that were just uh, wooden boxes 
with some acrylic uh, around them and then with lights to keep them warm. And she had a really great deal of makeshift supplies just to try to really help these babies. And she had one assistant. And it was really quite remarkable and quite difficult to see these very young babies about maybe some were four days, some were a week, you know, just struggling for their life in very, very difficult and harsh conditions. Did not have all the things that we have here in the West to help these, these, these babies live. And so I was walking around, and Caroline and Sacha were walking around, we were looking at the babies, and I was just so moved by Sacha's compassion and love and dedication, even, even using a great deal of her own salary to buy the supplies because she couldn't get all the money that she needed for the, for the, for the, for the, for the unit. And, and seeing the babies in this incredibly uh, uh, d uh, fragile and vulnerable situation, and I could feel myself sinking. It was, it was, it was hot, you know, and the, the room had, was closed in and a lot of light to keep the babies warm. I could feel myself starting to lose my um, energy. I was starting to get hot. And I got to the point where the whole thing, she, Sacha was starting to tell stories about the mothers of the babies and how if the babies died, then the mothers would get thrown out of the house because the, the families didn't want uh, a woman in the house who had a baby who had died. And all these amazing stories, and I just was really feeling like I couldn't take it very much. So I, so I started to think I need to go I need to leave and go sit down while they continued walking around. So I just left and went to the office where it was a little bit cooler. There was a fan and sat down. And I could just feel this incredible sorrow, this sadness, this pain of just like the pain of the world just coming over me. And knew that I just needed that my work was just to be with that. I could, I could sense that it would be in the old days, before I did the practice, what would have happened were lots of expectation and judgment upon myself that I was the one sitting in the office and they were the ones that were walking around being able to be very loving and uh, present with the babies and I'm the one who's sitting in the office. And my ideals of, of being this open and loving and connecting person uh, would have been playing very strongly but instead, I knew that I was doing exactly what I needed to do for myself, to be sitting there and to tending to myself in, in the place that I was with tremendous compassion and tremendous love for my predicament and for what I was going through, and at the same time not losing any connection with the whole of the experience, the whole uh, context of all that was happening. And while I was sitting there, my heart was feeling so open. And I was in the very next room were the mothers, some of the mothers, uh, young women, 16, 17, 20 years old, just sitting there not knowing what to do, being very confused, kind of talking among each other. And I just felt I, I was so touched that I had the capacity 
to be able to sit there and open to all of that, to open to my own pain, to open to the pain of the whole situation and not be able, not shut down, not judge myself, not put the expectations on myself. And knew that it was exactly the right thing just to back off, to sit down, and to cool out. And sometimes it's exactly what we need to do is to get out of those images and those ideas that we have about how we think we should be able to respond in a situation. Because those, those ideas that get imposed, cut off, cut, we cut off from ourselves so that we're not able to listen, we're not able to respond in a clear and wise way anymore. Those ideas of what's right and what's wrong and what's good and what's bad and how I should be and how I shouldn't be. Rather than just that compassionate response to the situation just as it is. There was a very, very significant experience for me to witness my own response to myself and to others right in the midst of such a difficult situation. And not to judge that, you know, I, I should have had the capacity, you know. What was, you know, she's a meditation teacher. Why can't she go around and knock on the, 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 the plastic and, and send metta to all the babies, you know. No. That wasn't what was happening. So what was happening is what I needed to attend to. And that's what, that's what was so powerful, is the ability to be able to do that. When we get caught in this duality, these extremes of right and wrong, it's suffocating. We suffocate ourselves. And we can't listen any longer. The situations that we find ourselves in are not black and white. There's nothing that happens that's black and white. And so when we drop our ideas of right and wrong, what would it mean to respond from the heart? To drop those ideas of all of our ideas and just to respond from the stillness, from the quietness of our own being. I wanted to read to you um, this quote from this um, abbess of, of a Korean seminary for 300 Buddhist nuns in Korea. Her name is Mung Sang Sunim. It, this is from a book by Martine Batchelor. Uh, Musong says, great sadness means that when someone falls into a lot of suffering, we spend much energy to get them out of it. It also means that when sentient beings are sad, we are sad with them. When they cry, we also cry. Great love means that when sentient beings are happy, we are happy with them. Being sad together, being happy together, this is great compassion. Great love means that we give great happiness. Great sadness means that we deliver people of their suffering. There's nothing passive in that. There's nothing detached in that. 
We're moved, we're touched, we're active, we're engaged. We let ourselves be touched by the things of life. And as much as possible, let go of the impositions of the mind and to respond from the quiet place within. Narayan read that poem from Rumi last night. Come, we need to come out of our ideas of right and wrong. There is a field. I'll meet you there. There is a field. I'll meet you there. Then we're not bearing down on ourselves with our mind. Yeah, we feel that. Some of you have felt that here over this week. How you, we can bear down with our mind. Oh, I've got to do this. I've got to be this way. I've got to get this done. But we relax. We relax and let our heart open, let our mind open. And then we allow for the possibility of a wise and compassionate response to whatever is going on. Perhaps we can trust our capacity to respond to things when we do this. I want to read this poem by Naomi Shihab Nye, which I love to read. I've read it a number of times. I just love to read it. It's called Kindness. And again, it just, as you listen, you hear the invitation for engagement, engagement with life. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things, feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out of the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak, it, speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread, only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. So we are being asked to listen, to listen to ourselves, to listen to what's important, what, what I think is important, what you think is important, what, what I think has value, what you think has value and has meaning. And when we listen in in this way, it's all there. 
all our wisdom, all our compassion, all our love, it's all there waiting for us. And sometimes when we listen in and we ask the question of what's important, what's meaningful, we won't know. We won't have the answer right away. We won't have it all figured out you know, in, in nine days. But then we need to be patient with all that is in our heart. And I'd like to end with this poem from Rilke, a reminder for us as we leave. Be patient toward all that is all that is unsolved in your heart. And try to love the questions themselves. Do not seek the answers that cannot be given to you because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answers. Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart. Let's sit together for a few minutes. Thank you.